I want to look this evening with you at one of the great characters of the Bible, one of the most amazing people in the whole of history, and an extraordinary example to each of us. And having looked at some glimpses of his life, to ask the question, what motivated him to live the way he did? And what then enabled him to live the way he did? This guy's name was Paul. Uh, about a third of the New Testament is made up with letters that he wrote to churches in the first century, churches he had planted or that had been planted. And not only do his writings continue to influence us almost 2,000 years later, but his life, his character, continue to be an example to us. He excelled as one of the brightest and most devout religious men in Judaism, and following his conversion became one of the most effective followers of Jesus in history. You might argue the most effective. If you think in terms of the gospel, there was Jesus, and then really there was Paul, and certainly with the spread across the world to beyond the Jewish people to Gentiles, to non-Jews, which includes us here in Nottingham, he was really the crucial person who made the greatest difference in that. I find him to be a, a wonderful example of someone who is just sold out for Jesus, utterly committed to what Jesus called him to spend his life doing. And his, li his uh, life challenges me personally, his example, as I consider my own rather comfortable life and limited level of dedication. Paul was originally known as Saul. He was a Pharisee. And as the Christian church grew, it was deemed to be a sect within Judaism. And basically the a Pharisee like him, he was vehemently set against it and tried to crush it and stamp it out. And so did everything he could, including violence, to do that and having people imprisoned. And then he has this incredible conversion. The risen Jesus appeared to him and he came to faith and immediately began to tell others about Jesus, which he then spent the rest of his life doing, traveling from place to place. In the old days, there was a thing called a hardback like mine, leather-bound Bible. Any of you still own one of these? I know you've got devices and all, but in the back, there was a thing called the maps. Some of you are too young to know that. But if you had one of those, you could find the map like this one. And this shows Paul's four major journeys. He traveled from Jerusalem, down in the bottom right of the screen, where the Christian church began, going right up through modern-day Syria and Turkey and Greece and as far as Rome in the top left. And remember, he didn't have all the luxuries of modern day transportation. The journeys would have been on rough roads, uh, mostly by foot and also by boat. And on these missionary journeys, he saw so many people come to faith and numerous churches were planted. And you can read about all the stuff that went on in the book of Acts. And as he went, he also encountered opposition, great opposition. Acts chapter 9 tells us that Paul was described as raising havoc, and he certainly upset some people. He was asked to leave some towns, and on more than one occasion there were attempts to kill him, all for what he was teaching. He was teaching about Jesus, which upset, he could upset anyone, Paul could. He could upset Jews, and he could upset non-Jews, Gentiles, and pretty much wherever he went, a good bunch of the people he was talking to, that was their reaction. One of his letters, in one of his letters, the church uh, in Corinth is writing here in 2 Corinthians 11, and I'm picking this up partway through him beginning to describe, this is what my life seems to be like. Okay, verse 24, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Well, what is that? It means he was whipped with a whip, probably publicly, 
punished 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes. The reason for that was if a person uh, carrying out a punishment exceeded 40 lashes, that person was at risk of dying. And if they died, then they would, the person using the whip would be culpable for that. And so they always did 39 as they counted to make sure they never exceeded 40. So really taken within a few inches of his life, many times, five times, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Something we're going to look at this evening. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. In sort, you might... You might just uh, summarize, he's been in danger an awful lot. He says, I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Paul faced serious trials for sharing his faith. But as we read in the book of Acts, he just continued on and on. Just when I get down, you get up again. How's it go? <laughs> when I get, I get knocked down, I get up again. That's just, he just, what? Again and again, as we'll see in a moment. Some of you are too young for that as well. Sorry, that's, that's early 80s. For instance, having just been in a town called Antioch, where Paul and his team had been. <laughs> oh, dear. Should we stay with the notes tonight? You know, it was okay this morning. It all kind of flowed without any reference to that song. So he's been in Antioch. This is serious, serious stuff, okay? He'd been in Antioch where Paul and his team had been thrown out of the town for preaching. Then they went to a place called Iconium where they tried to stone him. And then he finds himself in a place called Lystra. And we find this now in Acts chapter 14 and verse 19. And it says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Being stoned had a different meaning in those days to the one it might have today. But in that culture, it was a terrible, terrible thing. If a mob wanted to execute someone, then the common method was to pick up the rocks that were lying around in the street and throw them at them until that person was dead. Paul then collapsed, and the people who were used to seeing dead bodies dragged him. They believed they'd killed him. They dragged what they believed to be his dead body outside the city and dumped it. Whether Paul had died and was raised to life again, we simply don't know, or whether he was just unconscious. But after the townspeople had left, Paul woke up. Verse 20. But after the disciples had gathered around him, so it says, they stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he regained consciousness and said to them, I have had enough. I just can't deal with all this hassle. I'm going to settle down to a life of mediocre Christianity. Are you following in your own? None of you still have a hardback Bible. Some of you got devices on. It doesn't actually say that, does it? They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. I beg your pardon. So remarkably, he's alive, but given what he's just been through, he would have been battered black and blue, pain throughout his body from his wounds. He got up and what? He went back into the city where the people who had just tried to kill him were. And the next day, they set off for another town. 
And as we read on, and I would encourage you to read these chapters, Paul then says, hey, let's go back and visit Lystra. You remember Lystra? That's the one we just read about there, where they just tried to stone him. And if they catch him in Lystra, they'll probably stone him again, and this time probably make sure he's probably dead. And then he says, let's go back to Iconium, where, if you remember, they tried to stone me and are probably ready to have another go. And then back to Antioch, where they threw us out. It's an extraordinary story. You couldn't make this stuff up. And you might ask Paul, why? Why? What's driving you here? Uh, Maybe it was just his personality. Maybe Paul was simply an adrenaline junkie. Some years ago, a guy called Noel Farrelly did a skydive, which didn't go so well. 7,000 feet, jumps out of an airplane. As he comes down, his main chute is pulled, and something gets tangled, and it doesn't deploy. So then, as the ground's hurtling towards him, he thinks, okay, I've got a reserve chute, pulls the reserve chute, that goes up and tangles with the main chute. And even as that's happening, and he's now going round and round as he's falling at about 100 miles an hour, he manages to get the strings round his neck. So he's partially being strangled as he's falling, hurtling towards the ground with really nothing slowing him down. He's absolutely terrified. I don't know whether he was a believer, but he found himself praying as he describes the horizon coming upwards. And then he crashed through trees, through the branches, bam, bam, and hit the ground, bam. His friends, of course, seeing this from a distance, oh my goodness, we've lost our friend, he's going to be dead. So they trekked up and found where he was. And he wasn't dead, he had a collapsed lung, both of his legs were massively broken. And as he lay there on the ground, all broken up, he said his first thought was, when can I skydive again? And then after considerable time in hospital, hospital, he went on to do so. You might say, are you crazy? You know, that is madness, isn't it? You might say he was foolish, in a hurry to get fixed up so that he could jump out of another airplane after that experience. You might say the same thing about Paul. How foolish. Couldn't Paul just be a little less bold, temper his message so that his hearers would be comfortable listening to him? That's a pressure all of us face today in our increasingly secular society. He said something interesting in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 10. He says, yes, I am. You're right. I am a fool. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ. I am a fool, but there's a reason for it. I am a fool for Christ. He was evidently a highly motivated, high-achieving kind of person, extremely focused, somewhat driven. But what motivated him to live the way he did? It's true that God uses our personalities and our gifts, and so I'm sure his personality did come into it. But it would be easy to read Paul and think, well, I'm just not like him. I could never be adventurous or you know, driven like him or just do, well, when I get knocked down, I like stay down and have a short snooze and get up and have a cup of tea. I'm not like Paul, you know. But I was believe there's something far more important, much more significant that motivated Paul to do what he did. I believe it was something he mentions 85 times in his letters. He was the recipient of God's amazing grace and it turned his life upside down. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Christ's love compels us. He was a compelled person. 
as we've seen. Remember that before meeting Jesus for himself, Paul was a zealous persecutor of Christians. And he says in his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.13, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. He knew that he didn't deserve anything from God. But God had shown him favor, mercy, grace, love. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, talking of Jesus, he writes this. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Paul was profoundly aware of the grace of God, the unearned, undeserved, amazing grace of God. He was very, very aware of how he had sinned and now how he had received forgiveness, stuff you would never imagine he could be forgiven for. This grace poured out on him abundantly, lavished upon him, and it compelled him to live the way he did. As we head towards our next question, what enabled him to live the way he did, I was interested to find a biblical scholar mentioning an ancient document from the second century called the Acts of Paul and Thecla, which describes Paul. So it's not included in the Bible, but there is no reason to doubt its reliability as a document, an ancient document from the second century. And it describes Paul this way. A man little of stature, thin-haired upon the head, crooked in the legs, of good state of body, with eyebrows joining and nose somewhat hooked, full of grace, for sometimes he appeared like a man and sometimes he had the face of an angel. What a description on so many levels. Evidently, Paul did not influence people with the attributes that many celebrities or even celebrity pastors in megachurches across the world might today by being perhaps tall and impressive and good-looking or being a, a really charismatic personality. He was in many ways the opposite. Assuming this is an accurate description, there's no reason to doubt it. He was, uh, we're told here, he's a small guy. Good state of body, that's good. Possibly physically fit maybe strong, balding, bow-legged or in some other way crooked in the legs, with a monobrow and a hooked nose. So not the most impressive of physical specimens, but there was something extraordinary about him, a quality which stood out above all the others. This man was anointed. He was full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, just to read back, full of grace, for sometimes he appeared like a man and sometimes he had the face of an angel. In ancient paintings of people like Paul, saints of old, they were often portrayed by artists as having a halo. And it's thought that this stylized ring of light around someone's head was a way of portraying what's being spoken of here. The grace of God exuding from him, the presence of the Holy Spirit evident upon him. Sometimes it seems his face was kind of shining as you look at him. You think, something really shining about this person in an inexplicable way. History tells us that he was executed in Rome. He was beheaded during the reign of Emperor Nero in somewhere around 63 AD. And this 19th century painting by Enrique Simone is entitled The Beheading of St. Paul. And interestingly, it shows his bald head shining as in the description that we read earlier. 
Now, as I say, it's a stylized rather than a literal way of painting. I'm sure it didn't physically look like that if you photographed the scene, but it may simply denote also that he was a saint. It's a stylized way of doing that, but maybe there was more to it. Perhaps people saw the grace of God evident upon him, even at his death. Which leads us into the answer to our second question. What enabled him to live as he did? As we read Paul's letters, a couple of times he tells us the answer to this question. He acknowledged that he was a hard-working person and he worked harder than anyone else he'd met and he was constantly on the move. And, uh, but then he explains where the energy to do that came from. So 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I worked harder, but it wasn't me. Yes, I worked really hard against huge opposition, but it's not so much my own effort. It's the grace of God empowering me and energizing me, anointing me to do it. It's not in his own strength. There's this supernatural dynamic going on involving grace. He also says in his letter to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1, where he's talking about preaching the gospel and suffering in the process. Verse 29. To this end, this is talking about Jesus, I strenuously contend with all the energy I can muster. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't. He to this end, I strenuously connect with all the energy Christ so powerful, powerfully works with me, sorry, in me. I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Same dynamic, not his own strength. Yes, he works harder than others. Yes, he strenuously contends, but he does it enabled by the grace of God and the energy that comes with that. Grace is what sustained him. That's what got him out of bed each morning. Even in the most difficult circumstances, the energizing and sustaining touch of God. For grace, sorry, for Paul, grace was like fuel. We all know that the engine in our car will be pretty ineffective if there's no petrol or no diesel in the tank. It doesn't matter how good your car is, what brand it is, what color it is, what capacity it has, it will only take you on a journey if there is fuel. Like fuel in the tank, grace enables us to do things far beyond what we could do in our own natural strength. So what motivated Paul to live the way he did? If you've been paying attention, you'll know the answer to these two questions. They're one-word answers. Okay, so what motivated Paul to live the way he did? Grace. What enabled him to live the way he did? Grace. So how might we apply Paul's story to our own lives? Now, we are, of course, not called to be Paul. There was only one of them. We're called to be ourselves. And comparison with our, ourselves and him is likely to find us uh, lacking. None of us have had the experience, for instance, of meeting the risen Lord Jesus on a road, and that being our conversion experience. And uh, we may be wired rather differently to him. We're not called to be what he was called to be. You know, we're not called to be all of us like great evangelists like him, and we will all respond to grace differently. I find it amazing the things that some people feel compelled to do um, in response to grace, and then that they're enabled to do in response to grace and empowered by that grace. Think of Mother Teresa. Which of us could do what she did? 
we don't have the grace for that. But she did. She was anointed and empowered to do what she did. For example, I know a number of you here foster children. And I remember a conversation with someone who came to speak to me as they were considering whether fostering was something that God might be calling them to. Now, this couple, they both work full-time. They already had four children. And I was a bit concerned that this might be just too much for them to cope with, as it would be you know, for anyone, uh, really. And I thought, wow, that's, that's like, you've already got four. I, that's double the number of children I've got. And like, my life is, is pretty busy. I don't think I could fit another child into my life and family home. And so I said, the question you need to answer is pretty simple, because I can't tell you whether God's called you to do this, but do you have grace for it? Do you believe God is giving you grace to do this thing? And it's a question I've often asked myself as I consider the things that I'm able to say yes to and no to. It's like, is this something God's called me to? And if so, do I have grace for it? Because if he's called me to it, the answer will be yes. They felt they did, and they have fostered many, many children over the years since, and they've done it with a great sense of ease and a sense of joy. God treats every one of us uniquely, and I have grace for what he's called me to, okay? Leading this church, leading the wider movement with Debbie. And if I didn't have grace for that, I would just collapse in about two days. I couldn't do it. Others will have grace. Others of you have grace for what you have been called to do. Grace empowers us to be who we're called to be and to do what we're called to do. Grace, the empowering, energizing, fueling resource which is poured out lavishly on us and uh, even when we feel we have nothing left in the tank. Grace is also what puts courage back when we have been discouraged. In John 16.33, Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble but take heart, I've overcome the world. But you're going to have trouble in this world, okay? No one in the Bible ever said that the Christian life was guaranteed to be easy. There will be hard times. We are promised them. There will be trouble. Some of you here today are going through extraordinary trials, feeling like you're as good as dead, like life has slammed you into the ground. You've been faithfully walking with God and tragedy has hit your family. You've been witnessing at work, you're experiencing just ridicule and no fruitfulness. You've been faithfully giving to the Lord's work, you're finding it hard to make ends meet. Or you're facing any number of hard circumstances. And if that's you, we want to stand with you and there'll be a chance at the end of the service here to have someone pray for you. I also want to encourage you this evening that although Jesus warns us that following him is not always going to be easy, he said, take heart, I'm, I'm with you. I've overcome the world, and surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age. I am with you through it all. He says that when you feel utterly weak and defeated, hang on to me, and I'll sustain you through the deepest valleys. Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthian church about the struggles, his struggles, and his plea that the Lord would deliver him from his trying circumstances and his feeling of utter weakness. And the Lord said to him, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it's recorded, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. Some of us may be wired a bit like Paul, ourselves. We might uh, sometimes be described as being maybe a bit driven or as compulsive high achievers, maybe even workaholics. And for us, the danger is doing too much. 
It may be that because we're very inclined to take responsibility for things, or we like to say yes, or we like to please people, we may find ourselves doing more than we have grace for. Serving on this rotor, helping this person, and this other rotor, rushing from here to there, doing another project. And that, that may typify, I may be describing your life a bit there. And the truth is, you know, we may just need to slow down a bit. If we're doing more than we have grace for, we need to cut some things out. Some of us by nature just want to go fast all the time. I think of go-karting. We used to take the pastors on the staff go-karting probably about once a year on one of those indoor tracks. Fantastic. You get in this thing, you've got two pedals, the brakes. Don't bother with that one too much. And then you've got the accelerator. And they'd say, the accelerator has a stop. It has a limiter, so you can only go so far and don't kind of stretch the cable too much. Um, but um, that limiter was like a welded piece of metal. But there was some flexibility I discovered in it because if you actually put your foot down with all your might, you can actually bend that and get another mile an hour. Some of us do that. But if I try to live my life like I would like to drive a go-kart on a track, I'm going to overheat. And God has taught me a lot about slowing down. Some of you have listened to me for the last months and years, and you know that. Being in his presence, being refueled, being filled again with him. Some of you this evening need a touch from God. Those of you who are experiencing struggles and challenges in your life need to be reminded that God is with you. And as hard as it may feel to spend time with him in the midst of what for some of you may be the most difficult circumstances, I believe there's an invitation this evening to seek God in whatever way you feel able to. There will be an opportunity after we've worshipped some more in a moment to have someone pray for you. But I'd also encourage you, spend time with God on your own. Paul was a praying man. I haven't got time to expand in that. He says, I speak in tongues more than any of you. He says, you know, pray ceaselessly, continually. Rejoice in the Lord. And and when you're going through difficult stuff, just continually bring it to him with thanksgiving, with petitions. And then you'll find the peace of God reigns in your heart. It's through relationship with him that he gives us strength to endure the trials that we face. And God hears the simplest of prayers. You don't have to try and be a prayer like Paul was. Maybe even just saying, help me, Lord. Some of you maybe have never experienced God's grace. You're not really uh, aware of God's forgiveness in your life. And he's inviting you this evening to begin a relationship with him. Some of you have been walking with God for years, but today you need to know afresh his closeness to you. If you've been challenged as I have by Paul's dedication to Jesus, the encouragement to all of us this evening is that we don't do it on our own. There's an invitation for each of us to experience the incredible grace of God that he pours out abundantly on us, lavishes upon us, just as he did Paul. And in experiencing that grace, to find both the motivation to live as God would want us to, but also the enabling, the anointing, the empowering to do so. (laughs) 